he was charming. He was charming. Um, he wasn't he wasn't gruff. He wasn't overbearing. You know, he he had a he had like a a, a childlike voice. I, I I believe I described it as like Mike Tyson going through puberty. Right. That's right. Is the That's way right. this guy sounds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know he he um he had a gentle demeanor, but every now and then flashes of the demon yeah. would come out. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our main guest today is Frederick Reynolds, former head of detectives of the Compton Police Department turned award-winning author. Fred is here today to tell us the story behind his new Tour de Force nonfiction book called Saint Bloodbath, based on a series of brutal murders that took place in a homeless encampment in Southern California in 2008. Joining Fred today are two of the detectives, Detective Mark McGuire and Captain Martin Rodriguez, who played key roles in solving the unusual and complicated case that involved members of the Nuthood Watts drug gang multiple police jurisdictions, and a single hand discovered by a woman riding her horse in the desert 100 miles away. They're here today to shed light on the diverse victims, the unhoused culture they lived in, and the year-long investigation that led them to one of the most frightening criminals any of them had ever met. It's a great pleasure to welcome Frederick Reynolds, Detective Mark McGuire, and Captain Marty Rodriguez as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Gentlemen, thank you all for doing this. Would you please introduce yourselves? Okay. Hi, uh, good morning. Martin Rodriguez. I was uh, working with uh, Fred Reynolds when he first came to Homicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, Partners for probably over a year. And he uh, included me in this uh, recent work that he produced. At the time, I had a, about oof, 15, about 14 years at Homicide. Mm-hmm. I've got, oh, I just had, coming up on my anniversary, 40 years at the Sheriff's Department. I work for Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and I'm currently a captain on the department. But I uh, yeah, worked with uh, Fred, and then uh, in the book, my partner at the time was uh, Bobby Gray. Mm-hmm or G-Ray. Okay, G-Ray. Okay. Good morning. Uh, Mark McGuire, uh, retired Long Beach homicide detective. I was there for 25 years. I retired in 2015. I've known Fred Reynolds since 96, I believe. Mm -hmm. I met him when I was working the gang unit for Long Beach PD. I'm also a retired musician former drummer and uh, writer-producer for the late, great Barry White. Wow. Uh, I did that before becoming a police officer and then eventually becoming a homicide detective. Mm-hmm. I worked homicide for fifteen ye- the last 15 years of my career and um, caught this case in November of 08. Hmm. So you must be the only person on the planet who's gone from being a drummer for Barry White being a homicide detective that he is <laughs> right how did how did that happen briefly um when i was coming up my dad uh rest in peace uh 
there are six well now there's five mcguire brothers um there's uh, one pass last year but he raised us to always uh take care of business and uh, have a fallback if what you're currently doing is not working out for you so um when i was a youngster a young man i was playing music traveling the world doing gigs and i had a family so mm-hmm. um i needed a gig with uh, a job with uh benefits for the family and a future so i'd always wanted to be a police officer at some point in my young life and uh when i i had made a made a plan that when i turned 30 if i'm not financially secure i'm out i'm gonna try to be a cop and mm-hmm. uh that's what i did fantastic now fred great to see yes, you sir. again the book let me hold up the book i recommend everybody buy this book fantastic fred tell us a little bit about yourself I'm uh, a retired uh, deputy sheriff. I worked homicide for about five or six years until the end of my career. I worked with uh, Marty Homicide. You're assigned with a more tenured investigator, you know, and, you know, we teasingly, we call call that tenured person uh, our daddy, right? <laughs> and we're their kids. So Marty mm-hmm. was my daddy when I got to homicide. He broke me in to the way that the sheriff's department investigates homicides, um, the protocols and the policies and procedures uh, regarding uh, the sheriff's department's way of investigating murders. I I was a Compton police officer before I became a deputy sheriff, and I worked a homicide there. I was actually the supervisor of the homicide unit there, but I still had to learn when I got to homicide, and and Marty Marty was a good teacher, and Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from him. Mm -hmm. Mark McGuire is probably one of my oldest friends. We met way back in the 90s. You know, it sounds funny now, but we met way back in the 90s over a case um, where we had mutual gang members that were, you know, doing dirt in the cities of Long Beach and and Compton. And we came together working a case. And because of uh, these these gang members were terrorizing both cities. Mm -hmm. He uh, he's he's one of my, my one of my closest friends, you know. We go on family vacations together. As a matter of fact, last night he was at my house eating my hot dogs. I only, <laughs> only had three left and he ate all three of them. So, um, you know, I, I love both of these guys, you know. And, and of course, you, 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 know, you know the relationship that we have, Ralph. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for you, I can honestly say that I, w- I wouldn't be a writer. It was dubbed the Homeless Massacre by the press. On the morning of November 2nd, 2008, Five bodies were discovered in a homeless encampment near a 405 freeway on-ramp near Long Beach, California. The victims were Catherine Cat Verdun, a 24-year-old still attractive drug user who made her living turning tricks. Lorenzo Villacana, 44, a small-time drug dealer and gangbanger most of his life. His attractive Pacific Islander girlfriend, Vanessa Malepule, who was a decade younger and known for her charming smile. Hamid Saifrat, 41, known as Sammy, a gaunt, mild-mannered Middle Eastern man, and Frederick Neumeyer, 53, a white man of German descent who looked like he could have once been a doctor or lawyer, but suffered from alcoholism and diabetes and walked with a cane. All had fallen on hard times and were abusers of alcohol and drugs, and all had been shot in the head at close range. Fred, 
What attracted you to this case in particular? Oh, this case, yeah. um, I, there was so much involved in this case that, that touched me, right? Yeah. yeah. The investigators, McGuire, mm-hmm. he's, like I said, he, he's one of my oldest friends. Uh, Marty, I worked with him on the sheriff's department. You know, he, I, I, I consider him a friend as well. And, you know, not only a friend, but a mentor. Mm-hmm. His partner at the time was Robert Gray, or the, the infamous G Ray, as we mm-hmm. call him. I worked with him when we were in the gang unit, and I worked with him at, at, at the sheriff's department in the homicide unit. Mark's partner at the time, Hugo Cortez, I worked with him. I knew every investigator involved in this case uh, intimately as it relates to uh, professional relationships. So I knew how they worked, and I knew um, the quality of the investigations that they conducted. These five people that were murdered in, in Long Beach, these five uh, unfortunate homeless people, they were murdered at an encampment less than a half a mile from where I lived at, at the uh-huh. time. Uh-huh. I heard the shots. Of course, I didn't know, you know, shots are kind of frequent in Southern California, so I, I didn't know um, what they were connected to. But some of the victims, I knew some of the victims. Mm-hmm. One of the victims was an informant for my gang team at the time. I worked in Carson, which was probably three miles away from where the murders happened at. Uh, one, of the, one of the female victims, I knew her family. Her family was, was big in Carson. We all knew the, the family. Several of the other victims, well, at least two of the other victims, I knew because I would see them uh, panhandling on the freeway when I was going to work. Mm-hmm. There was a restaurant about two blocks from where they were murdered called Fantastic Burger. I bought my family food there and I would see them begging for food around the restaurant. And oftentimes I bought them food and sometimes I gave them money. Mm -hmm. So I had an intimate connection with this case Mm -hmm. uh, on all angles. And the victims were, I mean, they were a melting pot of, of, of ethnicities, uh, which is what Los Angeles County is known for. Yeah. And in this case, we, we, we had everything I had, a you know, there was a German victim. There was a French victim. There was, you know, uh, White, I mean, it was all yeah. manner of people involved. And even with the investigators themselves, they were from such a diversified uh, background yeah. that I felt this case needed to be told. And, you know, I told Mark about it and he agreed to help me with it. And I got in mm-hmm. contact with Marty and, and Marty gave me whatever information I needed mm-hmm. um, in, in regard to research. And, and I was able to get it done. Fantastic. Uh, you're absolutely right. It certainly does. I mean, the, the, the characters are, are so rich and so interesting and so diverse, right? Um, yes. And, and the circumstances by which all these people sort of ended up in this encampment are, uh, you know, fascinating. It's sort of like the story of uh, L.A. County right now with, with our homeless problem. Okay, Mark, could you, could you kind of set the scene for... You know, when you were called, when you got the call, what did you find? It was my, uh, actually my birthday week. Uh, my birthday is November 4th. Mm-hmm. And I was on call. Me and Hugo were on call. And usually uh, we caught anywhere from one to three cases per call out. Just Hugo and I. I guess that's just wow. the way it was. Uh, it was wow. usually two, minimum two. Yeah murder cases or, or yeah, just- murder kidnap or an officer involved shooting that's what we that's what we handle mm-hmm. um, and in the city of long beach it was usually murder usually gang related murder um most of our murders were gang related uh so this particular time of the year 
it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was my birthday weekend, but that didn't mean anything because I was on call. So yeah. uh, usually when I'm on call, I don't plan anything. I just wait, sit around and wait and then clean up whatever I need to clean up case wise. So I get the call uh, the morning of November 1st. And uh, it was a day after thanks uh, after Halloween, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I respond first and I call Hugo, wake him up after I get the information. But when the dispatcher called me, uh, they told me it was uh, it was five bodies on the side of the freeway. And I I call Hugo. We roll out. Uh, I get there first and the big wigs are already there. The command post is already set up on the freeway. Um, they're right in the middle of the crime scene that I find out later. And, and then I go to work. You know, mm -hmm. once Hugo gets there, we go to work setting up the uh, the perimeter, trying to figure out how it happened, where it happened. If there's any other crime scenes related to the primary crime scene. And there was, mm -hmm. which is why they, uh, you know, I made a move, the made a move, the command post from in the middle of my crime scene down to the street. It was the first time I'd had more than a double, I believe. I've had double homicide, but never mm -hmm. a quintuple. So to me, it was just like working five different murder cases in one in one crime scene. And that's the way we processed it. And it mm -hmm. took us a couple of days to process all of the property that was in there because it was, although it was a homeless or unhoused camp, uh, these folks had all their property and whatnot in there. So yeah. Collecting the uh, property, collecting the evidence, identifying the evidence to see if we uh, what we had, what we could use to, you know, try and identify a suspect and eventually catch them. So mm -hmm. it was meticulous. It was a coroner call out instead of, you know, they they brought the uh, the mash cows or the unit um, out there instead of collecting all the bodies individually and taking them to the coroner's office. Mm -hmm. It was actually the greatest use of all my skills as an investigator, as a person who uh, dealt with property, who dealt with victims and witnesses. I had to use every skill set that I had in my mm -hmm. tool bag to, mm -hmm. uh, to get to pull this case together and to start mm -hmm. investigating it as well. And the crime scene was right on the freeway. Oh, it was an encampment. It sounds like it was split kind of split. There were two encampments, correct? There were two. Yes, sir. The main campsite where the murder occurred was actually on the side of the freeway. Uh -huh. So as you exit the southbound 405 at Santa Fe on the embankment, their campsite abutted up against the Collier building. It was a, a manufacturer there. I so they building. Yeah. 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 They tied their tents up against the fence line and then they, it went um, north into the hill side of the hill or into the in the their camp mm -hmm. which is where they had one two three three tents mm -hmm. set up in there or three mm -hmm. campsites set up in there all sectioned off on the other side of the freeway was the without giving away the story yeah 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 <laughs> was another campsite and within the story it will reveal that mm -hmm. second second or first campsite so mm -hmm. um yeah there were two i knew there were two like fred said uh and marty uh you know i worked gangs before i worked homicide so i'd worked the whole city i'd worked patrol 
a graveyard. So I knew the city like the back of my hand. And before mm-hmm. I became a, a cop and uh, while I was working with for Barry, I was a Simmons cable TV uh, supervisor, installer and supervisor and technician. So mm-hmm. I knew the city probably better than most most cops. And I knew the area. All those skill sets helped me um, with this case. The dilemma of the homeless or the unhoused is enormous and growing in Southern California. The latest at point in time tally of people experiencing homelessness in LA County in 2023 is a whopping 75,518 people compared to 69,144 a year ago. That shows a 9% increase in LA County and a 10% increase in the city of LA from 2022. Recently, the LA County Board of Supervisors approved a $532.6 million homeless initiative spending plan for fiscal year 2022 to 2023 that significantly expands permanent and interim housing solutions and increases funding for local cities. Statewide, California has spent a stunning $17.5 billion trying to combat homelessness over the past four years. During that same time frame, from 2018 to 2022, the state's homeless population has grown. Today, according to federal data, half of all Americans living on the streets, or 170,000 people, are in California. And every year, California adds more unhoused people than any other state in the country. Could you spend a minute and and describe the victims? The victim that probably caused the demise of of everyone else, his name was Lorenzo Villacana. They called him LV. He was a member of of a Carson Street gang, and he had fallen out of favor because he was he had, he was a cooperator with mm-hmm. with law enforcement mm-hmm. on occasion and um his girlfriend her name was uh Vanessa Malapule she was a Pacific Islander a member of Arch family in the Carson area and then we we had another victim uh by the name of uh Hamad Shrefat and uh, they called him Sammy um there was a victim by the name of Catherine Verdun and then the last victim's name was Frederick. They called him. They called him White Fred, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was. He was. He was a German gentleman. Uh, mm-hmm. Catherine was French. Like I said, Vanessa was Pacific Islander. Uh, LV was was a, a Mexican uh, gentleman. So what happened was all all of the victims have been shot multiple times. The majority of the gunshots they received were to the face and head areas. Yeah. And as Mark uh, investigated the case, he would he would come to find out that that the locations of the of the shots were part of the killer's uh, M.O. Mm-hmm. The guy believed in, in shooting people in the head because he didn't want to leave anybody alive to to witness against him in the future. Yeah. yeah. There was a sixth victim. I'll get into that victim after Marty yeah. Uh, yeah. talks about how he got involved in the case. Okay. I want to take a minute and just read the opening so people get a sense of the language and how vivid the language is here. Kevin Sullivan's hands were slippery with his own blood. 
They clutched at his throat as he gasped for air, listening to the screams all around him while he lay on the concrete driveway of a house in a gang-infested area of Carson, California. Voices mixed in with the screams, some of them calling his name and telling him to hold on, others saying that help was on the way, most of them begging God to spare his life. Silence and darkness quickly descended, and Sullivan accepted the inevitable as gravity took control of his hands and they fell away, allowing the blood to flow without obstruction. Some great stuff there, Fred. Beautiful description. Thanks, Ralph. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, so, Mark, how do, how do you start an investigation like this? You've got five bodies in a homeless encampment. Where do you start? Securing the crime scene is probably the first thing that I did mm-hmm. or that we did. And once we secured the crime scene more efficiently than what was initially done, uh, I try to identify how the crooks got in, how they got out, what evidence is visible to me at that point um, that I could use to identify the suspect. And in this case, you know, it would have been... <laughs> It would have been uh, footprints, yeah. Uh, but however, because the chippies, uh, CHP, found the the victims first, they had brought numerous other partners through there to look at the dead bodies. Yeah. So um, the shoe print angle was gone, and not to mention my department, they did the same thing. Everybody wanted to see the crime scene, so. So we try to find I try to find evidence that I can use to identify a suspect or lead me to a suspect. Try to figure out what the motive was, mm-hmm. anything that I could use at that time. And in that day and age, even in 2008, video camera footage was was important. Of course, there was none in that yeah. area that I could use at the time. Just trying to gather witnesses in the area that might have heard what went down any eyewitnesses in the area that might've heard what went down. Like Fred said, there was uh, the hamburger spot not too far away. Mm -hmm. And that particular area where the unhoused lived and hung out and pandered, I was looking for other witnesses as well. So that's it. Just trying to gather some evidence, trying to figure out who was who. This particular case, Sammy, Sammy was a victim of mine on another case years prior to that. Uh So I actually recognized him once we, I saw his face. Yeah. So I had that in the back of my mind as, you know, well, maybe they got him this time. They didn't get him the last time. Right. So maybe they were connected. Yeah. Yeah. So just that, just trying to figure out a way to start looking for the suspects. And to do that, you got to do the crime scene. You have to process the crime scene. Right. Everything in in the crime scene. You know, there were cell phones laying about, you know, so we're looking for fingerprint evidence. We're looking for ballistic evidence. We're looking for forensic evidence, DNA, that kind of stuff. What can I what can I test? What can I send to the lab? Yeah. All that's going on in my in my mind um, as a checklist to process this crime scene to identify a suspect. And as you start canvassing the neighborhood, what do you start to hear in terms of, uh, you know, what people heard or saw? or what they knew about these these five victims and also as investigator what is the level of suspicion from or a reluctance to talk to you 
from people in in a case like this? The level of cooperation, particularly in this case, because the streets talk. So yeah. we believed, or I believe, that the streets knew what went down. Mm -hmm. uh, across the street from the crime scene was a housing area, so I didn't get any cooperation or I shouldn't say cooperation. Nobody really saw anything. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people heard the gunshots because there were multiple gunshots. There was a bunch of gunshots. They heard the gunshots, but nobody saw anything. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until later when we got into the case that we realized we had more witnesses than we thought. I mean, there's several ways to put a case together. And, you know, it all helps out eventually um, getting that information when you interview your suspect. But in this case, all we had was multiple gunshots. We had no eyewitnesses. We didn't really have anything to go on. But the neighbors knew about the homeless or the unhoused people living in the area. Mm -hmm. They knew that they lived somewhere back there, but they didn't know where. Yeah. So it was difficult trying to find any witnesses at all yeah. uh, that could lead us immediately to a suspect. Fred, could you talk uh, a little bit about what was the, the situation in L.A. County in 2008 in terms of the, the level of crime? Like the youngsters say, it was off the hook. It was, yeah. you know, I mean, um, the wild, wild west. Yeah. You know, and it, and it, it had been that way, you know, for, for decades, since the 80s, mm -hmm. um, through the 90s, through the 2000s, and all the way up until uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the gang violence was really bad. And the drug usage you know, was was part of it. Yeah. You know, they they came hand in hand, and then you throw in the homeless situation, and you got an unholy trinity. Yeah. Um, which is which is how everything you know came together and clashed because Mark and his partner they had to investigate all of those angles. You know, most of the victims used drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the victims, well, at least one of the victims. <laughs> Uh, had to sell her body to survive, mm -hmm. right? Two other victims were were alcoholics, so these victims were all uh, outcasts of society, yeah. and you know they did what they had to do to survive yeah. daily. And uh, you know when I when I started writing this book, I knew that that was one of the things that that I wanted to to ensure the readers understood that no matter how these victims live they were human yep right yep and i wanted the reader to understand that i wanted the reader to walk in their shoes um i didn't want to just present these five victims you know homeless victims all of a sudden they're dead right yep. now the hunt yep. for the now the hunt for the suspect is on yeah i wanted people to understand what these people went through i wanted people to empathize um with their plight and you know they lived in in in, in an area that was besieged by gang violence yeah um this particular area of long beach it was close to carson and uh, carson you like i was the, the supervisor of the gang unit in carson at the time mm -hmm. we had a lot of gangs in carson mm -hmm. right then if you go just north of carson th then you have compton yeah and compton i mean i don't even have to talk about you know compton and, and you know its reputation pr precedes itself yeah so um you know, all most of the people that frequented the Compton, the Carson and Long Beach areas, they had connections to Compton. 
So the gang violence was out of control. You know, there were hundreds of gang related murders every year. But usually homeless people or the unhoused, I guess is a more proper term these days. The unhoused were rarely victims yeah. of murder. Yeah. Okay. That's why the city of Long Beach was, you know, they were they were in uproar. They, you know, they were they were terrified. They thought a serial killer was running around the city, you know, killing homeless people for God's sake. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was there. There was a real popular se- season of of the of the show The Wire, which is one of my favorite television mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Um, the fifth season was about you know a serial killer killing homeless people, although it was made up. Yeah, but you know you you have all that going on at the time these 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 poor people were murdered in the city of long beach they had a big homeless problem at the time yeah and they didn't know whether uh the unhoused were just gonna be you know all of a sudden just you know be getting murdered you know daily or weekly or whatever so there was some apprehension about uh, the serial killer aspect but mark to his credit pretty much knew right away that it wasn't a serial killer he knew that it was um some some street stuff or some street mm-hmm. shit as mm-hmm. we call it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the administrators and in the police department and the city officials of course they never listen to the investigate the people who know the most about yeah. something yeah. they never listen to us right because they know everything <laughs> and um you know they 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 disregarded what mark told them and you know yeah. they wanted to run with this with this uh serial killer because it, it was sexy right yeah, for the yeah, news yeah. right it's a and sexy the nature headline. the nature of the murder is but uh, the guy having shot people in the head kind yeah, of lends so many and, and so that many theory. at one yeah. time yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah so they they didn't want the simple narrative of street shit right? right right they wanted this super story you know this 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 glamorous story of you know homeless people target a mad serial killer right that just the wasn't press, the case that lends to, lends itself to the press as well correct so, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. None of none of these victims had like serious criminal records. I mean, they weren't like active criminals. They had done things and and you know the drug use and so on and so forth. But none of them were like had done serious time for 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 big crimes, right? Correct. Okay. Most of them were just uh, victim to their to their addiction, mm-hmm. you know, drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol, and that's one of the main reasons they were. They were uh, living on the streets, uh, with the exception of maybe the main uh, victim, uh, Viacana. Yeah, um, he was living on the streets because he was hiding out from yeah. uh, from his debts, and he was he was slinging. He was a gangster, and he was slinging dope. So okay, he so was he probably, was really different from from the other four. Yes, the other okay. four were living there out of just the way their lives, the the, the turn their lives took at the time. Right. Right. And so how did the investigation progress? When were you able to establish that uh, LV was was probably like the, the, the chief the chief victim in, in this situation? Very early on in the investigation. I don't want to give mm-hmm. away the book. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, very early on in the investigation, he was my motive, if you will. Right. We believe that he was the motive for for these murders, or the target. Yeah, the, the target for the murder. Yeah, and it was it took a while to pull all it together again without giving up. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. beautiful story Fred wrote and uh, the way he captured it in the book. Yeah, it was very early on. And Mm -hmm. so it was just a matter of proving that, putting it all Mm -hmm. together, proving it, and then investigating all the other angles that were thrown at us. The serial killer angle that Fred mentioned and you mentioned was huge because, like he said, the administrators jumped on that. The press jumped on that. I mean, I had international agencies calling me from as far as as, uh, Europe and London and France and, you know, trying to see if we had a a serial killer uh, out there targeting the homeless at the time. I knew early on, I believed early on that wasn't the case. It was what it turned out to be. And I kept that at the forefront of the investigation. And then we had to investigate all the other angles to rule them out, you know, Mm -hmm. because you never know. And there were so many different angles that we had, but, uh, you know, it took a, it took a little bit, but Mm -hmm. eventually it worked out. And increasingly people came forward with, with information. And I, it sounds like a lot of it had to do with sort of sorting through people's stories and figuring yeah. out like what what part of what they were telling you was true and what part were they kind of covering up to keep themselves uh clean so to speak absolutely Be- because of the nature of the witnesses that were involved the uh, the unhoused folks and we knew that a lot of them were terrified on the streets we had to be very careful with uh, how we handled information and the information that they were giving us was we could corroborated and mm-hmm. we knew that they all talked to each other and we knew yeah we knew that they were sharing information and that's one of the beauties of being the the investigator on the inside of a of a case is that you know you know what's what right and what's not and even with all the information that was coming in 90 percent of it was the same and we knew that they were mm-hmm. sharing information or we believe that quite a few people had went to the campsite prior to the police showing up uh, and saw the crime scene right 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 because so they, they heard it that. and they went they rushed right. over there yeah so they went they used that to their to their advantage to get fed to get to get housing you know we we, we took care of people uh, mm-hmm. we definitely take care of witnesses that take care of us meaning mm-hmm. um, we knew they were they were hungry we knew they needed the needed things the necessities to life and um, we took care of that. I mean, you know, nobody else was doing it. Yeah. And and eventually uh, we were able to put things together. Even Marty's portion of the case was was huge because yeah. it was kind of like as bad as this is going to sound, the icing on the cake for who we believe did it. Yeah. And once Marty's case revealed itself to us, then it, it solidified you know who our who our yeah. suspect was yeah because it you would kind of come to a somewhat of a standstill there with your investigation and, and then this other aspect developed yeah it actually came after a short a little bit of a breakthrough mm-hmm. but when but when that case when his case revealed itself to us that was the icing we knew then that now what we have to do is to put it together yeah There's a great passage here. Fred, you you recreated these exchanges between the detectives, I thought, you know, (laughs) that that was beautiful, really effective. 
there's one great uh, passage here where you guys talk, the two in, uh, investigators talk about the war on drugs, and particularly George Bush, the old man. And it says, fuck that asshole, Hugo. He made an enemy out of entire inner cities across the country, which was where the biggest drug problems were. And if you think about it, he didn't really do shit until his wife got pissed. She was appalled at what was going on in her great nation when all she had to do was look at the motherfucker sleeping next to her to find the root cause of the devastation. It's always the wives, huh, amigo? Then Nancy Reagan got on TV and said, just say no to drugs, like it was that easy to do for those people in the ghettos. Next thing you know, her husband authorizes local PDs to deploy armored vehicles. They called them battering rams. But you and I both know they were just tanks without guns. They had to be some scary shit for kids to see rolling past their schools and playgrounds. We got all these presidents declaring war on the wrong enemies when they should have declared it on the people bringing the bullshit into our country. And that would have meant following the money. And we know where that would have led. See, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's great, Fred. That kind Thanks, of sums Rob. up the bigger picture. Yeah, it, it really does. And, you know, yeah. I was able to recreate conversations like that or create conversations like that because, you know, like I said, I, I know all, I knew all of the investigators and I still know the investigators yeah. intimately. I've, I've shared these same discussions yeah. with them. And, you know, there there's a lot that goes into investigating a, a case. And obviously, if you're riding together, you're not talking about the case 24 seven. Right. There's other conversations that go on. Right. And and cops get frustrated at the politics of and, 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 yeah. and the social ramifications um, that go on as well. Yeah. You know, um, we don't always agree with everything that mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. We don't always agree with the things that our politicians are doing. And sometimes we get frustrated and, and you know, it it comes comes to light during conversations in, in a patrol car, particularly when you are on the sheriff's department, uh, the, the LA County Sheriff's Department investigates homicides over a huge range of area. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like this case was interesting because the five unhoused people that were murdered were, you know, murdered near a beach, right? Mm -hmm. Marty's case happened in a desert almost a yeah. hundred miles away. Yeah. And that was another exciting aspect of this of this story um, that I, I love retelling because of their the interjurisdictional cooperation that had to be conducted to make to bring these cases home. Marty and his partner, they had these long drives up to Lancaster and there was room for a lot of discussion. Um, sure. I, I've had some of the same discussions with Marty and I've had some of the same discussions with, with Bobby Gray. I know what goes on in a car between investigators mm -hmm. when you're in the car for two hours going yeah. to investigate a murder. So, you know, Marty, I think I think we can we can segue into 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 Marty's case. I, yeah. I don't want to yeah. give up too much about how the two cases came to be connected, right? Because that okay. would be giving up a big part of the story. Okay. Okay. But um and Marty can talk about, you know, um, the his long trips up to Lancaster, which, yeah. as a former sheriff's homicide, that's one of the places we hate to go to, Lancaster, okay? Because, I mean, it, it, it's just a different world up there, so. Okay. 
just to throw in one comment, it makes sense because you guys are investigators, right? So right. It, it makes sense that you would try to analyze and figure out like during your not free time, but you know, uh, just naturally how these problems that you have to deal with on the street, like where they come from, right? Right. What the right. root I causes mean, are. Yeah. Yeah. The, the media, they like, they like to portray, uh, cops as knuckle draggers. Right. 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 But there's some really, really bright cops, sure, sure. you know, with a lot of introspective and, and a lot of erudite conversations. So yeah, these, these men that work this, this, these particular cases, very smart men, very, sure. very smart have men to be. Have uh, to and be. great, yeah. great investigators. So, right. so it's natural that you're, you're analyzing the bigger problem as well. Like, okay, we see the results. We see this happening on the street. You know, why? Yeah. Why yeah. is this happening? Right. Yeah, and th there's another conversation that, that I, uh, you know, I've created in the book about where uh, Marty and, and one of his partners, you know, they're talking about existentialism, right? And as yeah. it relates to, to police work, it's kind of like, you know, we've seen babies get murdered while they're sleeping in their cribs from a stray round, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've also seen some of the worst people that ever walked the earth get shot five, six different occasions and survive. Yeah. Those yeah. are the kind of questions like, why, why this person? Right. Why did right. the baby die? But this piece of shit just keeps right. to keep living and yeah. gets to keep hurting people. You know, these are yeah. conversations that we have because we see all these type of cases. Of so. course. Okay. Marty, thanks for your patience. Can you talk about how you became connected to this case? First of all, the, like as Fred was saying, the, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Homicide Bureau, it, it's very unique in the way that it handles cases uh, because we're centralized, mm -hmm. but we're responsible for uh, murder investigations in the vast area of Los Angeles County. So yeah, all these huge. Yeah. departments, uh, areas of responsibility, as well as uh, law enforcement agencies that request our assistance. And then I've also I also worked uh, multiple units, centralized units like narcotics, gangs, uh, major crimes that takes you throughout the far reaches of the county. Mm -hmm. So I became familiar with the Antelope Valley area where Lancaster and Palmdale are located. Never liked it. As Fred said, <laughs> because it's a it's a long drive it is a long drive yeah yeah but my best cases if you will are always as i reminisce or centered around there because it's it's a vast area but a small town mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. i had a person there was a nexus to five murders that i handled she was involved as uh one, she was the victim's girlfriend. On two others, she was a peripheral witness, mm -hmm. and just kept running into her, and it, it was crazy like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, going back to this case, <laughs> so so a year later, up in September of 2009, Bobby and I get a call about a a severed hand that's been recovered by uh, a woman who was horseback riding and her dog brought a severed hand to her. Lancaster, California is a city of approximately 170,000 people at the northern edge of Los Angeles County, 
and Southern California's Mojave Desert. Located approximately 70 miles from downtown LA, in what is known as the Antelope Valley, winters there are generally cool to mild and summers are hot and nearly rainless, with average high temperatures in the high 90s. Today, Lancaster is home to major defense contractors such as Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, BAE Systems, and government agencies such as NASA Armstrong Flight Research Center. Law enforcement in Lancaster is provided by contract with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, of which Captain Marty Rodriguez is a member. The area was about 20 miles east of Lancaster, uh, near the Challenger Middle School. To set that scene, it's a desert scape. You have the school, and then surrounding the school is brush, sand, dirt, and desert. Wow. So it takes, with traffic, it takes, oh, uh, you know, at least an hour and a half, if not more, to get out there. So we get it in the middle of the week, as I remember. And by the time we get out there, sure enough, we got a hand on the dirt road. Yeah. Uh, a distraught woman who's, we get a brief statement from her. With the limited daylight that we have, we try to do a, a, a circumference search of a, about a perimeter of about a, a mile, and then uh, darkness falls, and you know we're done for the for the night. But uh, the news media gets a hold of it, you know the, the the information regarding the severed hand, and they go out in the the daytime the following day, and they're reporting, they're doing a. a stand-up a remote stand-up out there on on the uh, circumstances and uh, kids from the middle school see yeah. this find out about this hand and they go running off into the desert you know farther than the mile circumference that we crazy yeah back then they lo and behold they come upon uh, a ravaged you know remains of uh, the sixth victim and the Case begins, you know, our, our portion of it. And I mean, this is at least 80 miles away from Long yeah. Beach. So, you know, I'm not thinking it's related to March, right. you know, and this is not unusual yeah. for the, yeah, you know, yeah. coming across bodies in the desert. I had one on September 11th. I remember it because it was uh, 9 11. Yeah. And it was uh, a missing person and, Ultimately, it turned out to be another taken out to the desert and murdered guy. So yeah, yeah, we had to wait for an anthropologi- uh, anthropologic uh, excavation of the remains because you very tedious, you know, yeah. digging dirt around the body and 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 searching for evidence. So so it took a few days to uh, to process the scene, if yeah. you will. And, and this scene- was another unusual victim. Can, can you describe him a, a little bit? Right. Part of your investigation is to do a victimology once you yeah. identify him. So we took several days. We had to go through the autopsy process to finally identify him. And when we did, it turned out to be a uh, missing person. But uh, this poor kid was, uh, he, he was a white kid, but he went through foster homes. And so some of the foster parents that fostered him were african-american 
So he gravitated toward that culture mm-hmm. as far as street life and, uh, you know, fancied himself as kind of a, an African-American gang member who attached himself to one of the gangs up there. Yeah. And, and so, but he was taken in and, and, yeah. and, but, uh, you know, and then because of his appearance, he had really, and from his photos, they were really good looking eyes. I mean, so they call him cat eyes. He had really uh, mm-hmm. blue piercing eyes. And, um, so then we, you know, looked into the missing persons report and, uh, Unfortunately, as will in, in big departments and things fall through the cracks, uh, that that case wasn't investigated very well. There was a, a, a lot of issues with it. Uh, we worked several months on this case, and every time you have to drive up that track <laughs> thirteen, which yeah. in uh, Fred's book obviously gives the opportunity for the banter to yeah, 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 <laughs> which and, is great. Yeah, and yeah. I mean it all endearment because if you don't like the person you're with because you spend more time with that sure. part than your own family right 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 so those relationships get really close right. I'm sure if you're, yeah if you're gonna work a case well yeah. with yeah. bobby and i we we were we had a lot of luck and we're successful in solving a lot of cases but because we enjoyed spending the time working them and yeah. we didn't think being around each other and although it's very sardonic and and sarcastic our, our banter <laughs> really yeah. we really liked each other so yeah 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 well that comes through in the book definitely and that's been with most of my partners i haven't uh-huh. had i've been fortunate not to have partners but i have had partners where you could hardly wait for the day to end uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> must, that must be rough man and, that must be rough yeah and, and feel bad because man you could we could do so much more but Right. I gotta get out of this. <laughs> right. I don't want to be around this guy anymore. Yeah. 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 Cat Eyes comes across as very uh, like a real tragic victim because he was just this, you know, kid. He didn't seem like such a bad guy, but he just got, man, uh, just a you know, as you say, Fred. When you look at it in terms of an existential view, I mean, this kid just got the a raw deal all the way through his life. All, all the way through, Ralph, it was, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of problems with with the foster care system yeah. and the Department of Children's Services. And this kid was, you know, he, he just got the raw deal in yeah. life, you know, and I, I have I have a lot of empathy for kids that are products of foster care homes. My wife and I adopted a child that was on the way to foster care if we hadn't stepped in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know the system, yeah. right? Because I had to rough. go to court yeah. during yeah. The, um, while I was trying to get custody of this kid. Yeah. So I know what these kids go through. And, you know, th- this kid was seeking an identity, just like Marty said, you know, he got, you know, fostered by African-American family. And, you know, he's hanging out with these, with these gang members, you know. I, he wasn't fortunate enough to be introduced to, I might get some heat behind this, but he wasn't fortunate enough to be introduced into, um, I guess I can say quality yeah. people, Yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was introduced to these people that 
you know, want to be gang members and, and participate in drive-by shootings and sell drugs and yeah. kidnap people and rape and rob because that, you know, that's what they do. Okay, no, he was thrown in the ocean. just here to keep it real with, right now. Yeah, gang, he was thrown in the ocean with the sharks and he, you, you he know had what to I mean? learn how to swim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's this perception now that the, the gang members are cool and, you know, they're just like a product, you know, uh, just a good product of, of our society. They're not, yeah. Yeah. you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're criminals and they like doing bad things to people and hurting people. Yeah, he got involved in, in in that kind of a situation, and you know he was actually a member of uh, of one of the larger African American street gangs in in L A County, hmm. right? A, a yeah. white kid, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, his the way he he ended up was was just as tragic, yeah, if not more so, yeah, than the five people that were murdered in Long Beach, right? Um, because. As you read the story, you know, you'll get to walk in his shoes that last mile of his life. Oh, yeah. It's and you'll, really, get to, yeah. you'll get to experience, you know, probably yeah. what was going through his mind just before his life was ended. Right. And, and, and you know, it was it was horrible. That was one of the parts. If I read that part now, it, it, it kind of it, it touches me, you know, yep. um, because I can understand the fear that this kid had to be feeling just before he was brutally murdered. All right, without giving things away here, I want to talk about David Ponce. <laughs> because uh, what a character, man. Almost like the personification of evil. Clearly had a like a ongoing relationship with the devil there for a while. Uh, Marty, can you talk about him a little bit and his unusual uh, girlfriend? Because, uh, <laughs> I mean... How do you figure that, right? I mean, she sounded like a really, you know, cool woman, right? Who had her had it together. Yeah, this is really crazy because so we get the call from Mark, you know, and and then every homicide detective, man, you wait, you're waiting for that call. Yeah, so we get the call from Mark and Hugo that hey, we we might know who did your case up there, you know, and so we're all jazzed about it, and then he tells us you know, what's going on with the uh, suspect's girlfriend and stuff. So obviously we make arrangements for the four of us to, to go out there and, and meet with her. So she's in Lancaster. We get out there and she's what I like to refer to as a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's attractive, smart, <laughs> got her, her shit together. Wow. And, uh, and she's in a, in an area where those things don't often factor in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the crazy thing is she was living with this dude, this this guy who was uh man, evil incarnate, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And uh, it just didn't make sense, but <laughs> um as a as a homicide investigator, you never uh look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Yeah. So we took it and we ran with it and, you know, we, you know, talked to her and we got the whole information and, and this ultimately led to, you know, what every homicide investor gets paid for sitting yeah. down with this guy in a interview room. Yeah. And it's always been my philosophy. That's what they pay us for. They, you know, any, a, a trained monkey can go, you know, do a scene. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can, you know, look up information. It's all about, uh, you know relationships developing relationships right and in that interview room you know and 
when when I get new people that were breaking in, I always use this. I said, uh, you know, we're salesmen, state prison. Yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't make many sales, but when we close a sale, man, that's a big deal. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's better than the timeshare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so we we met with uh, David, and and man, it was chilling. It was yeah. chilling. And yeah. by this time, I'm an experienced uh, cop and homicide investigator. Yeah. But he was almost charming. Yeah. You know, which wow. tells you wow. a lot because yeah. he, very respectful. It wasn't, you know, he's a hardened ex-con, but did not come across that way. Not, and I don't know if it's the way we approached him or whatever, but we developed the rapport. Yeah. And he basically, at least to the Bledsoe murder, he he gave a statement and confessed which is like that's what i'm saying about that's a sale i close it i haven't closed a sale like that in a long time <laughs> so, this was a kidnap you know murder so yeah. i knew the ramifications are potentially the death penalty sure, absolutely After, you know educated in the in the prison system he knew that as well but yeah yeah uh, there, there was no fuss no muss it was a short interview and uh yeah, and that, that's how it went yeah, I, I want to read a passage here, just short, and this is him, this is Ponce, and he's with Tatsuo, is that, that the way you pronounce her name? His girlfriend? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ponce laughed and turned in her direction. He fixed his eyes on something behind her. You don't understand, he said. The demons are here. They're trying to get me. They want me to go with them. There's nothing there, babe, Tatsu said as she turned to see what he was looking at. No one else is here. If this is a joke, I need you to stop right now. You're scaring me. And just then he finally looked at her. His eyes were dead, cornea without sparkle, the pupils oval and fixed. He was somewhere in between heaven and hell, a blind man in purgatory. Wow. Man, that's some strong writing there, Ralph. Yeah, yeah. What the hell, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning it all over to you, man. Yeah, you know, it, I, I was fortunate enough to to actually speak with uh, with Tatsuo, and and that is not her 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 true name. Okay, okay, good, good. She was willing to talk to to us with you know after Mark's introduction yeah. of her to me. She was willing to talk to me, and I was able to get this information so that I could write what you just read. Yeah. And um, like Marty said, she's a very intelligent woman. Wow. Uh, very attractive. Yeah. And um, <laughs> again, like Marty, most people who met her that knew of her association or her connection with David Ponce came away wondering what the fuck, right? Yeah. Why, you know <laughs> exactly. what I mean? Why, why, yeah. why is she with this guy? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I mean, he didn't I didn't treat her so well either. It's no, not like he, he was did, a he great didn't. guy with her. Yeah, he did. And, you know, one of one of the the most challenging parts was humanizing him. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. No, you can be the worst person in the world. Right. Um, but there's a human aspect to sure. you. Sure. And uh, even though he treated her bad in the end, he had to have treated her good at some point. Right. Oh, absolutely. He had to and, be super charming. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah and like Marty said, he was he was charming. Yeah, he was charming. Um, he wasn't he wasn't gruff. He wasn't overbearing. 
you know, he he had a he had like a a, a childlike voice. I, I I believe I described it as like Mike Tyson going through puberty. Right. That's right. Is the That's way right. this guy sounds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he he um, so there was a um, gentle kind of uh, demeanor about him. Yes. In a way. Yeah. Yes. He he had a gentle demeanor. But every now and then flashes of the demon yeah. would come out. Right. Wow. wow. And, you know, during during their first date, um, I was I was I made sure to cover that, that he mm-hmm. was charming, but also the demon was just underneath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, and he admitted you know, I, it. Yeah. 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 So and and she told me Tatsuo uh, told me about the devil incidents, the, you know, the seemingly possessed incidents. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into that part. Yeah. But, you know, all of these um, things that I wrote about in this book came straight from I won't say the horse's mouth. I'll say the mayor's yeah. mouth because, right. you know, she and told these, me these were like in, involuntary uh, episodes it's not oh, like yeah. he summoned the devil it just sort of yeah. came and took him over yeah i mean yeah. he was um he scared he scared the hell out of her yeah um and like you that. know it seems i i would think even though we don't have any proof of it i would think that these manifestations always occurred shortly after he had killed someone mm-hmm. okay sure. Uh, sure. there seems to be you know some kind of connection with that and uh I don't know you know people can some people believe in 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 devils and demons and angels and heaven and hell mm-hmm. um i'm one of those that do i believe mm-hmm. in good and evil Same right yep. um and there there was there's a strong indication that there was something going on with this man yeah um, on the evil side yeah. they're supernatural yeah, yeah. because but the way he was he was able to dispatch people with not even a second thought yeah right yeah. um yeah after the cat eyes incident you know uh, tasua she told us exactly what he did afterwards and it's kind of like you got to be kidding me right yeah 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 it's um it's, it's a real interesting story he, this, yeah and that cat eye the cat and also in the cat eye incident you know he he didn't just shoot the kid right he cut right. him up right I no mean, well no he didn't oh, cut he him didn't? up no, that no. Was what happened was yeah. he shot him multiple times in the head with a large caliber handgun. So there mm-hmm. was there was no head left. Yeah. Uh, like Marty said, the, the the forensic anthropologists they had to literally put his skull back together. Now the reason why there were body parts severed and body parts missing is because of animal activity. Oh, right. Okay. Because okay. he he's in the desert and okay. and you, you got these yeah. coyotes and sure you know there sure. and. They're, they ate him up and then yeah. then came the carrion uh, birds okay. and um, they finished the rest of them. So uh, by the time they found his remains, there was literally nothing with, but bones attached inside yeah. of clothing with yeah. shreds of skin. Wow. It was horrible. It was, it was yeah. a horrible scene. Yeah. Mark, you know, what a twist uh, from your perspective, right? When you got the call from, uh, from Lancet, from Marty, that must have been like you know quite a big surprise to you. Well, I called Marty and I knew uh, uh, it would get handled. So when I called him, and it's in the book, our conversations in the book. Yeah. But I, I think I warned him and said, "Hey, dude, is a little different." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, I think you know I might have said he's pure evil or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of give him a warning, um, you know, David was probably the most evil person I've dealt with in my career. 
It's September 2017. After deliberating for a day, jurors in an L.A. County courthouse found David Cruz Ponce, 36, and Max Alessio Rafael, 31, guilty on five counts of murder for the killing of Lorenzo Villacana, Catherine Verdun, Hamid Streifat, Frederick Neumeyer, and Vanessa Malapule. Ponce was also found guilty of another count of murder and kidnapping of 18-year-old Tony Bledslow, known as Cat Eyes, and two counts of possession of a firearm by a felon. The jury recommended that David Ponce be sentenced to death. Max Raphael was sentenced to five consecutive life prison terms without the possibility of parole. You really got to read the book to, to figure mm-hmm. out how the investigation came together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a beautiful thing, like I said, because all of my experience from law enforcement was involved, was used in this case. You know, I had yeah. worked gangs. Me and Hugo worked gangs. We worked gangs together. We did hundreds of search warrants, entries yeah. and searches. And, you know, one of the things that led us to Lancaster during the course of this this investigation was warrant service and then we found what we found and I was able to call Marty and go hey I got a good idea who your boy is Mm. Uh, here you go yeah you know and then after uh, we got Tatsuo after we talked with her then we pretty much knew everything was going to come together and then it was just a matter of you know tying it together and putting the packages together. Yeah. And what was it like that that first meeting, you know, for you uh, with David being the guy who first investigated the murders and, and had seen the victims, when, you know, to sit uh, facing the, you know, the person that you suspect had committed all this carnage. How do you deal with a, a situation like that? That must be incredibly loaded for you. I had I had help. There was a department psychologist, Dr. Christine Cho. And before I did my interview with, with David, our first interview with David, I went to her to get like a profile of what I should and shouldn't do when I interviewed this dude. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those guys that uses everything in my toolbox. I don't care who you are, what you do. If you can help me with a case. I do what I can to get you to help me with the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Dr. Cho had been close uh, since I had met her. And I went to her. We sat down. I told her about the case. I told her about David. And she gave me her opinion of how I should should conduct the interview. Me being a man that listens to people that know more than me and, and can help me. I did exactly what she told me to do. I used the, the techniques and, and skill set she, she gave me. Mm-hmm. And it worked. He was able to uh, corroborate everything that we had um, suspected had happened. Mm. And on top of that, I had been investigating, listening, following him for years, right? However long it took to solve this case. Yeah. So I knew everything about him. Um, and when I went to Dr. Cho, you know, I shared that with her. And that's how she was able to mm-hmm. give me the skills or the techniques to get him to give us what we wanted mm-hmm. and i was you know it was the biggest interview of my career at that time well probably wow. ever yeah and i didn't want to i didn't want to fuck it up sure of course right not. 
like yeah. Marty said, you know, we get paid, we get paid to sit in the box across from the person and try to get that confession. And uh, I was pretty good at getting confessions out of people, but I knew that this dude was different. He was a yeah. little different, and I had yeah. to use whatever techniques I had to get him to give me what I wanted. Yeah. And I'm I'm talking to you like this because I don't want to give up the. No, 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 no. You're doing I don't a great give job. Up the book. People yeah, read yeah. The book. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like them to read the book. Yeah, so, no, um, absolutely. They're going to read so the book after yeah, they listen to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dr. Cho actually helped me with that. And so when we got in the box with him, uh, we basically played with him yeah. to get him to give us what we wanted. And yeah. he did. He did. And yeah, you was, were successful. Yeah. Yeah. She was a yeah. huge part of that. You know, yeah. and I give her props to this day. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, for helping us. Well, guys, uh, I'm not, we won't give any away anymore. People have to read the book. There's just one other thing, Fred, that I have to bring up, and that is the numbers. And I, I'm going to read one more passage here. The entirety of the recording, this is the recording with David Ponce, was three hours and 16 minutes or 316. The Bible verse about God so loving the world that he sacrificed his one and only son. With Ponce's history of fighting demons, with his mother seemingly casting the devil out of him, with the most terrifying portions of his confessions taking up 66 minutes and 60 seconds, perhaps there is a purpose in so-called angel numbers. Perhaps in them lies an explanation for the unexplained deaths of the innocent while monsters live among us seemingly unabated. Coincidences are nebulous things. The more they start to accumulate, however, the less ambiguous they become. Pretty profound, Fred. The numbers, Ralph, they, they played such a huge role in this case. And, you know, we started seeing the same numbers over and over and over. And, wow. you know, when you read the book, you'll see the significance of the, the number 11 or 111, which are called angel numbers. He definitely wasn't an angel. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, gentlemen, fantastic, fantastic book, Fred, and uh, great work uh, by both Marty and, and, and Mark. And uh, you really kind of humanize uh, what it's like, you know, to be a, in a situation like this, which is which is pretty confronted with like the worst of human nature and to extract something, uh, you know, beautiful and noble about it, really. And I, I, I commend you for that. One last thing. Now, this kind of work has got to take a toll on, on uh, it's got to be difficult because you're really like delving into the darkness and then having to come out and deal with your family and, and project a positive role model like in the world, which all three of you men uh, do remarkably well. Uh, can you talk about that for a minute, Fred? Yeah, you know, um, I wanted to cover that part of it in in the book, and I do touch on it. How when you're charged with investigating, you know, murders, which is the ultimate crime, um, it, it takes a toll on you, sure. right? Because you end up thinking about these cases even when you aren't at work. You end up thinking about these cases. Uh, something will trigger a case, uh, a part of the case, like a name, yeah. right? A name of a victim, a name of a witness, right? Or you might, you might think of something that you could do to help solve the case, 
Mm-hmm. We the point I'm trying to make is that the homicide investigators carry these cases everywhere with them like luggage. Yeah. To this day, Ralph, Marty, Marty and I had a case, right? Mm-hmm. This poor lady. Um, and it's it's funny that you bring up Dr. Cho, Mark, because Marty and I had a case where a, a lady by the last name of Cho was murdered and we, we didn't solve it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that one still stings. And, you know, to this day, I think. Is there something we could have did a little difference? Maybe, mm. maybe if we go back on it, if someone goes back on it, maybe there's been an advance in science and yeah. forensic science. Maybe they can find something that wasn't available to us at the time, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Marty, what shit? This case happened in what 2012? Yeah. What? And I still think about this, Ralph. And I've been retired since 2017. Yeah. And every now and then, you know, Miss Cho's case will cross my mind. Yeah. So I wanted the reader to understand, the, you know, the challenges that homicide investigators go through, mm-hmm. you know, how they carry their cases with them, like unpacked luggage. I think mm-hmm. I use that in, mm-hmm. in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're not just mindless robots without right. feelings, right? you know, without families. We have families. We yeah. have, you know, loved ones that depend on us. And I wanted to illustrate that in this book as well. That's why I touched on each investigator's yeah. family life, because yeah. not only do we do, do investigators have to manage and navigate these murder cases, we have to manage and navigate our personal lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes they intersect. Yes. Uh, especially when you're a homicide investigator. Yeah. Hey, well, you hey, you Ralph, do a great job of that. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. A, a unique aspect about that uh, kind of to touch on what, what uh, Fred is saying is especially for uh, specifically for sheriff's homicide, is is i'll drive all over the county you know for various reasons in my personal life work or whatever but i'll pass locations that are scenes of murders that i've had yeah it it brings that up and i just i remember the entire case it's 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 kind of crazy yeah but yeah that that's a unique aspect there when you when you're you're running all over this county and i can imagine and location. now there's just people driving by and kids playing and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Mark, uh, you have anything you want to add to yeah. that? Both Fred and, and Marty touched on it. And Marty just touched on driving by. I live in the city of Long Beach still. And I mm-hmm. worked here. Wow. And I've been here over 40 years. Um, so I moved out of mom's house. I moved to Long Beach. So not only do I drive by locations, <laughs> but I live. Yeah. areas where i've solved cases so yeah wow. uh, both in gangs and in uh in homicide but one of the things that fred covered in the book that i want a lot of the the law enforcement people to see is that we all had some type of coping mechanism to to deal with this job and for me it was riding my bike my uh my gold wing or whatever motorcycle i had at the time uh i played music mm-hmm. you know i still can play i can still work if if you need a drummer <laughs> um, as, long as, as long as the drums are there, um, I'm not packing up my shit and taking it. Good for over. you. Good for you. But, That's great. Uh, yeah. You know, but you have to have something to do outside of your job. And the way my father raised his boys is to go to work, leave that shit at work, come home, deal yeah. with your family life. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do. I didn't bring a lot of my stuff home. Mm-hmm. But like Fred said, I do think about cases, some of the cases that that I didn't solve that I could have, or something happened where that case should have been solved, but some kind of interference, um, that does occur. But I'm speaking to the cops out there, the people in law enforcement, the dispatchers, the forensic people, 
anybody that works in this business have a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Do something fun. Get a yeah. hobby. Yeah. Take your mind away from it. Yeah. You know, oftentimes I'd get blocked in a case or hit a wall. I would drop all that shit. I go get on the bike or I go in my drum room and just play for two hours or whatever, just to clear my head mm-hmm. and then get back. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then when I go back, I go back fresh. So I have a coping mechanism because this is not the only thing that we do. You know, there are other parts to us. Right. And I want people to understand that. Yeah, I came from the music business and I still delve in that every now and then. And that's one of my coping mechanisms as well as I ride a goal wing all across the world, all across the nation. So Mm. that would be my last part of adding to the conversation is, you know, the job is not you. It's it's what you do. It's not who you are. Right. That's that's an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. thing that that I think is important. I just want to. Yeah, sure, Marty. What's helped me and I think many others is maintain relationships with people. I mean, I did 17 years at this job. Like yeah. these gentlemen both said, it, it wears on you, man. Yeah, but if you can just leave it at, and, and have relationships where people don't know anything about what you do and it, you know, they don't know unless you talk about it and yeah. not talk about it during those periods of times. And we, and you know, we have conversations that have nothing to do with law enforcement Yeah, and, and I think that that helped me because, like I said, I've, I'm still around at 40 years and, you know, I feel good and still got clear eyes for the most part. Man. Good God yeah. bless you, man. That's great. You have to escape the echo chamber. Yeah. It's a yeah, good yeah. point, Marty. You have to, yeah. you, you, you got to get up, got to get away from it. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I admire all three of you very much. Fred, wish you the best of the luck with the book. We'll, we'll do everything we can to promote it here. And thank you both, uh, Marty and and Mark. It's been great getting to know you, and uh, uh, I wish you all the best, man. It's uh, it's a great story and a great book. Thank you, thank man. you, Ralph. Fred's new book, Saint Bloodbath, brilliantly describes the circumstances of the homeless encampment murders of 2008, the desperate lives lived by the various victims the complex investigation by skilled, dedicated detectives, and the mentalities of the brutal drug gang killers. It's required reading for anyone who wants to better understand the culture of the marginalized that is currently growing throughout the United States, and especially in Southern California, and the significance of the homeless issue facing our country. With the subtlety and depth of understanding that only an experienced law enforcement professional like himself could bring, Fred explores the working relationships between homicide cops like Detective Mark McGuire and Captain Marty Rodriguez and their partners, and the myriad challenges they face both professionally and personally as they do their difficult jobs. We're honored to have had all three men with us today. Author Fred Reynolds... Detective Mark McGuire and Captain Marty Rodriguez are today's heroes behind the headlines. Heroes behind headlines. Executive producer Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, like, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.